He sings a lot better than me. Only by a little bit. Hey, let's go Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the rooms and the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is super simple. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of very important stuff, up to and including uh, that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. And so if uh, you don't have a Bible of your very own, it makes it difficult to pursue knowing God. And so we can fix that this morning by sending you home with a paperback Bible. Uh, if you'll start reading it, I'll call it a win. Hey, um, we are walking through a series, uh, we kicked it off two weeks ago, uh, that we're calling Just and Justifier. The artwork's right there. Uh, we're walking, uh, taking a slow walk, really, through the book of Romans. And I, take a, I, I, I say a slow walk because it really is a slow walk. I was mapping out the whole length of the series, and when you add in all the extra stuff and breaks we'll do in the summer and Advent and all these kinds of things, we'll be finishing in June of next year. <laughs> slow walk. Hope you're along for the ride. It'll be fun. No, Justin Justifier. We are walking through the book of Romans, and uh, those, those two words, uh, those J words, are capitalized for a reason. Not just because it's the title of our series, but we, because we believe that they're titles for God himself. That he is both just and the one who justifies, the one who acts to justify. Um, and so a couple weeks ago, we launched this series, and we're walking through it, and we're trying to answer the question, well, how can God be both of those? Like, have you ever thought through this? Like, how can God be the one who is perfectly just? Always, always doing exactly what is right. Always giving to everyone exactly what they deserve. Always doling out judgment and justice to perfection for all of eternity. How can God be that in an infinite way, perfect way, and at the very same time be the one who justifies, declares righteous people who are sinners? Like, like there's, those two things can't exist in the same place under most circumstances. How can God be both the one who always does what is good and right and correct and the one who calls sinners to himself in love and in mercy and in grace? Grace and justice don't exist on the same plane unless you have a unique circumstance. Because if God is perfectly just, then showing mercy at all, and I, I mean ever, would be inconsistent with his character. And if God were only acting on mercy, well then bestowing the title of justified on sinners would actually be unjust, right? And so we have a problem on our hands this massive question, how can God be both just and justifier? And you may never have thought about the question that way, but it's a question nonetheless. And in one sense, Paul is going to spend the book of Romans trying to unpack the absolutely massive answer to that absolutely massive question. How can God be both the one who is just and the one who justifies. And so a few weeks ago, we introduced the idea of looking at the book of Romans as a gospel skyscraper. Y'all remember that? All right. And so we link those two realities, that, 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 that thought together with two different reasons. Um, 
One is because just like a skyscraper, Romans is a superstructure made up of many parts, right? Uh, You don't build a giant building by just randomly throwing a bunch of tall stuff together and hope it stays put, right? Like get a ladder and a flagpole and, you know, a crane and just kind of make them teepee style and walk away. That's not how you build a building, right? What do you do? You, you work in stages. You work in pieces. Right? And so you're going to walk systematically through those pieces, making sure each piece is right before you move on up the chain to the next piece. Right? And so Romans is a lot the same way. Paul is working toward the pretty antenna on the top, but he's going to get there piece by piece by logical piece, slowly helping us understand all the pieces along the way. The second reason that Romans is a lot like a skyscraper is because all the important work in a skyscraper is not going on at the top. It's going on at the bottom. It's going on at and even below the surface. And so everybody may be ooing and eyeing about the antenna on the top, but if you know engineering and you know what's going on, you're more impressed with what's below the floor, right? And you take your time on that stuff or else the building will never stand, Right? If you don't take your time on the foundation and the foundational things, it doesn't matter how tall you want to build it, it's not going very far. If it gets there at all, it won't last very long, right? Get the foundation wrong and the building will never make it. And so Paul's going to spend a major chunk of his time and his energy walking through key foundational things at the very beginning of this letter so that he can kind of fly through stuff later on. And so just, I mean, think of a building in your head. Like if you were to draw one on a piece of paper right now, you're going to have a big section on the bottom, you're going to have a smaller section above that and a smaller section, and just it's going to decrease, right? And so Paul kind of treats the book of Romans the same way. He's going to spend a ton of time on the foundational stuff, and he's just going to start flying through stuff as he works his way up to the top, right? And so with all that said, we ready to look at the next stage of Paul's gospel skyscraper this morning? All right, verse 16. Verse 16, we looked at this, we ended our time last week with this text. I think it's quite fitting to open our time this week with it. Romans 1, verse 16, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by what? So we landed the plane last week by saying that in God's perfect justice that he will give to all men exactly what they deserve from him, but some will receive grace. And that grace is given to everyone who lives by faith. That's what Paul's saying right there. And so if you've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ before, at least hear it here this morning, right? Neither you nor I bring anything that God would ever need to the table. The only thing that we have to offer back to God is the sin that separates us from him. That is a problem. But because of Jesus' sinless life and Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, he paid the debt of our sin through his death and he unites us to himself in his life. So the gospel is that now all those who place their faith in him, and and faith is just a synonym for trust. We, We kind of make it into a much bigger word than it is. Faith is just a synonym for trust. So all who put their trust in him and his finished work stand before him now as righteous because he was righteous for them. That's the gospel. So we looked at this text last week and we celebrated this wonderful offer of salvation by grace through faith. 
And if you've never responded to to that offer of grace, we're going to give you a chance later to do that. But we also raise a question. Because if that offer of grace is so clear, if the offer of salvation by those who stand in faith is just so plainly obvious, well, the next logical question in Paul's gospel skyscraper is what then of those who don't trust him in faith? Right? And that's where Paul turns to verse 18. Look at it with me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. If it's true that God justifies those who stand before him in faith, then what about those who don't stand before him in faith? Well, he who is perfectly just doles out his flawless justice, doesn't he? And the word that the Bible uses to describe this act of justice is God's wrath. Hey, what an exciting thing to talk about for Mother's Day. (laughs) But the reality is that we don't really want to talk about it anytime. Right? No one ever wants to talk about God's wrath. In fact, every single one of us would rather avoid that topic all the time. Myself included. Even pastors are guilty of this. You can go back and look through our podcast archives, our sermon archives. You will find that I talk about pretty much every topic more often than I talk about God's wrath. I try to avoid it. In fact, I wrestled this week with whether or not I should shut down the series for Mother's Day because it'd be awkward, right? It's not the type of thing that normal people would like to talk about for very long. We certainly don't want to be the ones to bring it up. We, like, we may have an opinion on it, but we'd rather just keep it to ourselves until somebody asks, right? But you remember a couple of weeks ago when we walked through the difference between an expository series and a topical series? And we said then that one of the, one of the benefits of a topical series was that we were, or of an expository series, excuse me, was that we were going to commit ourselves to a text. And then we would just walk through it line by line by line by line. And whatever came up next is what we were going to talk about. What if? What if, what if an expository series is God's good gift to us? To force us into talking about things that we would rather try to avoid. Right? Because if this was just some topical series, we'd do everything I can in our power to like, craft topics around things that were pleasing to talk about and and we'd have a lot of fun today and we'd do this and we'd do that and we'd have a great time but we would do everything we could to avoid this right and so what if in God's great love for us he forces us to say no 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 no, no. slow down here pay attention to this learn something the word wrath is, well, it, it's an interesting word. Like it's a weighty, big word in English, but it's a much bigger and much weightier word in the Greek. Um, the word in the Greek is uh, orge, O-R-G-A-I, orge. And I'll, I'll speak gently around this because we have little ears in the, in the room. But it, it has the same root as two words for sexual acts that I'm sure you've probably heard before. So what's the tone there? 
The tone that's carried in the word orge is this one of, of passionate release, of wanton abandon, an explosion of doing something, all right? That's what's going on in the word orge. Both of these words carry a passionate, unbridled release. So what does that mean for God and the way he looks at sin? Well, for starters, it means that he's not simply irritated by it, right? It's not some mere annoyance to him. Hey, would you cut that racket out? I'm busy. Even though it sounds a little bit better, and there's probably churches all over the place talking about this today, it also doesn't mean that he's sad about it because it hurts us. Like, we can go all over the place, even churches across town today that are going to kind of try to frame sin in that way. Now, I don't think that's, like, not true. God does seem to feel that way when it comes to the sin of his covenant people, right? I mean, think about it. He's a good father, right? And good fathers love and love in an effectual way. And perfect love doesn't sit back and watch the people that you love get hurt, right? I think God really is moved by the sin of his people and he longs and desires and roots it out and and he does something about it, but that's that's for God's people. You can go all over the Bible and find examples of that, but that's not at all what's carried in the tone of orge. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul's talking about God being intimately moved with a fierce, and hear me, active rage against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. That's orge. In layman's terms, God goes off on sinners. Yeah, the Bible is clear that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but there eventually comes a time when God's patience runs thin, doesn't it? And when that patience runs out, those sinners get wrath. And Paul's argument here is that it's a wrath that they deserve. Now, depending on your disposition, one of two possible questions just popped into your head. First one is far more common than any of the others. How dare he? Right? Who does he think he is? Yeah. With a pastoral love for you, a deep love for you this morning, I would point out that you ask that question because you arrogantly place yourself in judgment over God. I could never love and worship a God like that. I know you've you've made him out to be you. You might never call it an arrogant judgment. Some of you maybe would. I don't know. But most of you wouldn't. Doesn't matter though because you cannot ask that question without believing it at least a little bit. At a core level, you believe that you're smarter than him or that you see the whole picture better than him or that you have a better sense of justice than he does. Again, you may never say that out loud, but you can't ask that question without a heart-level posture towards him that places yourself above him. And so in love for you this morning, I would say repent. It will not end well. Repent. 
But I told you there were two possible questions that you could have asked. The second is a far, far more humble question. Second question is, what in the world would rile the perfect judge of all the earth to pour out his wrath in that way? In other words, what could be so heinous that the righteous wrath of God is the exact appropriate response from he who always gives out perfect justice? You ask the question that way, you show that your heart's in a far different place, right? I think you also begin to get a better picture of who God really is. And so what sin deserves God's orgate? Well, the architect of our gospel skyscraper doesn't leave us hanging. He actually tells us what it is. Look again at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the what? Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Okay, so the thing that has God's anger rightly riled up is not simply sin in the generic sense, right? God's not sitting around in heaven frustrated and fuming over our handful of picadillos. It's not sins, generically speaking, but rather one sin that is universal to all mankind. That's got him riled up, and it's the suppression of the truth. What truth? That God has been intentional to reveal pieces of who he is through his creation. So what does that mean? It means that by looking at creation, we ought to get a sense of God and his invisible tributes. Theologians call this common revelation, right? Or general revelation. That, that when we look at creation, we ought to walk away from that with a sense of God's bigness and a sense of God's grandeur and a sense of God's great concern for us and a sense of God's power and, yes, even a sense of God's moral perfection. That to see creation correctly is to get a small picture of who God is and how we relate to him. That's the purpose of general revelation. Not the whole picture, but enough of a picture. And Paul says that we suppress that truth. We're not talking about ignorance here. We're not talking about simply missing the point. Paul's argument is that we are guilty, every one of us, of actively suppressing the truth in our hearts. We can't see God's glory because we don't want to see God's glory. We refuse to see God's glory. I'm out. And even though God has made it abundantly clear, we have the audacity to say, I'm good. I refuse. And so according to the infinitely wise and the infinitely kind and the infinitely just judge of all eternity, all men, you, me, that neighbor that you're too scared to talk to, all men are without excuse. All of us. There's a common trope that gets thrown around a lot in some circles that tries to trap Christians uh, with what the, the asking, asker of the question, I think, believes is going to kind of nail the door shut on whether or not God is mean or loving and all these kinds of things. And the question always seems to go like this. What happens when an innocent man in the middle of Africa, or insert there, in the middle of the Sahara Desert, or in the middle of the jungle, or in the middle of a Pacific island, in the middle of the Pacific, whatever, all right? 
comes in many forms. What happens when the innocent man in fill in the blank never hears about Jesus? Would God really send that person to hell? I mean, that's the question. And the question is an attempt to try to kind of corner people and say, well, God would never do that. And so what's the answer? The answer is, of course not. God would never, ever, ever send an innocent person to hell. But the question is a trope because it could only ever be anything but hypothetical. Because according to Romans 1.20 and a hundred other verses like it in the Bible, there's no such thing as an innocent person. It's a trapdoor question that, does, that doesn't make any real sense in the real world. Right? It's a smoke and mirrors game. Whether you're talking about somebody stranded on an island in the middle of the Pacific or somebody worshiping a false god next door or somebody sitting in this room every week nodding their head and going, Amen. The Bible is clear. All men are without excuse. Period. But we can also take another step down into this. Look at the next layer. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul says that not only do we suppress the truth of God's revelation of himself to us, but we also foolishly and defiantly elevate the things that we've made in our own image and worship them instead. That's what Paul says. And this can include nature itself, or it could include little carved images, or it could honestly just be our sense of self-value and autonomy that we carry into every conversation. Whatever form it comes in, we celebrate those things because in one way or another they make us feel good about ourselves. That's what idolatry is. At its most basic level, it's a rejection of God's kingship and an exaltation of ourselves. It's a textbook definition of idolatry many forms as you can imagine but it always has the same root our selfish heart and Paul here calls it foolish foolish now when we think of a fool we normally picture something like a jester or maybe some kid sitting in the corner with a dunce cap on but to a first century Jew being called a fool wasn't an insult of intelligence it was an insult of morality. It was an insult of morality. That you, you knew what was right. You knew what was good. You knew what was most beneficial to others and to yourself. And you said, ah, forget that. And you ran headlong for the cliff. That's what's going on here. The tone is one of defiant wastefulness. I don't care what you say. I'll just throw it all away. That's what it means to be called a fool in first century <laughs> Jewish world. Are, are you beginning to see why an infinitely holy God would be moved to an explosion of action? And I mean, does anybody think that, anybody on the fence as to whether or not God ought to do something about that? 
So what does he do? Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. All right, so whether or not this is your first week here, if you've been here forever, I'm willing to bet that this is a teachable moment for just about everybody in the room. So listen up. The wrath of God, hear me, does not begin with fire and brimstone raining down from heaven. I mean, it happened that one time, but it hasn't happened since. Not his normal MO. He can if he wants to, just not what he normally does. And the wrath of God does not begin with lightning bolts or a cancer diagnosis or what many of you will probably think is the worst day in history coming up, the day when Bill Belichick and Tom Brady both retire. (laughs) Don't lie, I know you're terrified of that day. The Bible promises that there is coming a day with a capital D. There's coming a day when the orge of God will be active and it will be unbearable. But that is not how God's wrath begins. That's not the first step. According to Paul, in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is first seen by God going, you want that sin instead of me? You want to worship and celebrate yourself instead of the one who's actively holding your atoms together right now? You you really want that instead of me? Okay then, you can have it. I'm done. And he walks away. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Oh, church, I I really, really hope this morning that you understand that this is the most tragic thing that could ever occur. I, I beg God for you to walk out the door this morning understanding that. For God to say, I, I'm out. I give up. I'm, I'm done trying. And to leave us to our own devices is one of the most terrifying things I could think of. I would much, much rather have God actively pursue me with his discipline. So allow me to speak pastorally for just a second. It's a little off topic, but I'd like to take advantage of the moment. If you're in a season of your life right now where you can point to some things and it looks like God may be calling you to the carpet on some stuff, or you can point to some things where it looks like he might have taken away some good thing to get your attention, bruised you a little bit to wake you up to reality. If that's the season of life that you're in, hear me, it is never because of his anger. It is because of his steadfast and persistent love for you. So quit running away. Repent. That's for free. We'll get back to the text. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. All right, it's 2019 and we live in New England. Woo! 
And so even though I literally said 20 minutes ago that all men on the face of the planet are guilty of suppressing the truth and therefore deserve the wrath of God, this is the part of the text that many of you are going to struggle with the most today. Pastor just calling them like he sees them. Culturally speaking, we might frown upon it, but we can deal with the general call for everybody everywhere to repent, right? We might not listen, but we've heard it before, so we're right. But the second this gets personal, we got a problem on our hands, don't we? I mean, in polite society, we're supposed to be past this kind of stuff by now, right? So there are those both inside the church and outside the church in its broadest sense that, that want to try to jettison and distance themselves from the more culturally difficult parts of Christianity. And so they'll, they'll point to this text, and again, a hundred others like it, and they'll argue that it's outdated or it should just be ignored, or, or maybe they get more creative and try to look at it from a different angle with a different lens in hopes that by reading it a little bit differently, they can make it say something that it doesn't say. Some of those people, certainly not all, but I think probably some of those people are probably just doing everything they can to, to make the church inclusive to people that need to know Jesus. I think that's a good instinct. Those of you who have lived long enough, you know by experience that it's entirely possible to have, have it's entirely possible for someone to have great motives but make a wreck of things because they were chasing after the wrong thing. Right? I've lived that. How about you? See, Paul, Paul doesn't connect these sexual acts with, with hatred and he doesn't connect these sexual acts with a political position He's not simply a man with power trying to desperately to cling to a society that allows him more freedoms and influences than others. That's often the way that Paul gets framed and painted in these discussions. But Paul's argument here is none of those things. He argues that these sexual sins are a byproduct of a holy God stepping out of the picture and allowing us and our own self-exalting motives to continue chasing headlong for the cliff. That's his argument. He says that they are a natural result of an unrestrained heart that wants nothing more than to exalt itself. And I know, I know that that's going to sting in the culture that we live in. But you cannot argue with the reality that the core level rebuttal that's going to well up in some to argue against this is one that just says, I don't care. I don't care what God says. I don't care what God says is right. I don't care what God says is best for society. I don't care what God says is most beneficial for me. I don't care because I want this. Forget him, I'll go get it myself. That's the argument. And it's an argument that's literally as old as the Garden of Eden. This is what happens in Genesis 3. God's holding out on you. He's trying to control you and suppress you. And so if you want to be happy, just ignore what he said and go get it yourself. That's the argument. This line of reasoning dates all the way back to Genesis 3. There's nothing new under the sun. God doesn't see this as a hate issue or a political issue. He doesn't see it as a power grab issue. I promise you, he sees it as an idolatry issue. 
He sees right down to the core of us and our attempts to usurp him as king. He calls it for what it is. So don't you dare avoid the real conversation and make this about politics or a power grab. The question on the table for every single one of us in here, myself included, is who gets to be Lord of your heart and life? It's either God or someone far less deserving than him. That's what's on the table. Which means for us, church, we fail. We fail to be a people of the truth when we devolve into approaching these subjects and issues in those lesser ways. We rob God of glory in those moments. So put your politics aside and deal with eternal realities instead. It's a far better gospel play. Unless you think we just got some axe to grind this morning. It may be the immediate and obvious example for Paul when he's talking about a rejection of God and an exaltation of ourselves, but it is far from his only example. He's got a few more he wants to offer up. And they come in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent. Some of you are going to have to Google that later. Haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Okay, so Paul goes off on a laundry list of sin there, right? And some of those things feel obvious and massive to us, and some of those things feel honestly petty and small. Maybe, why should God get upset at that? It says that murderers are in the category of those who reject God and attempt to worship themselves. And that seems pretty straightforward, right? Like, yeah. Anybody going to argue with that? Murderers are the bad guys. They deserve punishment. He throws in there the evil and the malicious and the slanderer. And doesn't a part of you want to go, yeah, God, you get them. We all want God to judge the evil people of the world. Don't act like you don't. I mean, does anybody want God to look at somebody like Hitler and go, you know, I really feel like you've been misunderstood by everybody. Come on into paradise. a ridiculous argument. We all want God to be just. Every one of us in here can think of a long list of people we believe deserves God's orge. But then Paul also lists the covetous. Those who are always longing and wishing that they were someone else, with someone else, with something else, somewhere else. And then he lists the gossips and the boastful. And then he mentions those who are disobedient to their parents. Follow me here. The Apostle Paul believes that disobedience to your parents is rooted in and flows out of a selfish, God-rejecting heart. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) 
So you remember when we read several minutes ago, verse 20, when we said that all men are without excuse? Does anybody in this room right now escape indictment from the Apostle Paul? I don't. There's never been a day in my life when I've walked guiltless before him. Not a one. Even my best days are a train wreck. And left to my own devices, left to stand before him with nothing but my own lack of righteousness to offer to him, God in his perfect, infinitely good justice will give to all men exactly what they deserve from him. I, Stephen Wooder, deserve the orge of God. Full stop. But the righteous shall stand by faith. I said it 40 minutes ago, but it's far too important for me not to say it again. I'll, I'll repeat it word for word. If you have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ before, hear it here this morning. Neither you nor I bring anything to the table that God would ever need. The only thing that we have to offer him is the sin that separates us from him. But because of Jesus' sinless life and Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, he paid the debt for our sin through his death and he unites us to himself in his life. And so now, now everyone who places their faith in him, and faith is just a synonym for trust. We make it this big word, but it's not really a big word. It's just trust. And so everyone who places their trust in him and stands before him in his righteousness because he was righteous for them. That is the gospel. And so we want to give you the opportunity to respond to his grace this morning. Maybe you've never done that before. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll be down front here if you want somebody to walk you through what that step looks like. But maybe today is the day when you will finally say yes to the infinite God who is wooing you away from yourself and back to him. Maybe today is the day you say yes. If you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, it's your opportunity to respond to. And I think you do that by repenting of sin and pressing into God this morning. Specifically, I, I think that it would serve every one of us well to ask serious questions about, our, uh, about the things that we chase after in this world. Like just the simple question, who does it exalt? Is it you? Does it make much of God? I'll be real honest with you, I slip into that self-exalting mode far more easily than I like to admit. It terrifies me sometimes. What would God have you repent of this morning? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Oh, let's all respond to God's word today. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Romans. Thank you for forcing us to walk through difficult texts. I'm a chicken. I looked at Bunton this week. Pushing off to next week. But in your goodness and your great love for us, you say, no, this is, this is what I would have for you. I don't want to talk about your, your wrath. I want to talk about your grace. But I will never understand your grace until I understand your wrath. I will never understand the mercy you have shown me and the great love that you have for me if I don't first understand what I actually am owed.
I usually think I'm pretty awesome. You are the one who's awesome. I'm the one who deserves a day. God, thank you for your faithful and persistent, steadfast love for us. A love that presses in and engages like a good father. Not leaving us to our own devices, but instead calling us gently to yourself. God, call us to repentance this morning. Root out the things in our heart and in our actions that selfishly chase after making kings out of us. Celebrating and exalting us. And place our eyes on you instead. God, for those who don't know you today, would you change that? Would you make yourself known to people? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand this morning? And would you call people into your family? Would you breathe faith into us today so that we can stand before you in your righteousness? Oh, you are so good to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.